Well, good morning. As uh, Tim indicated, Ray's not here, so it's my uh, privilege to open up God's Word with you this morning. And um, I I don't know about you or where you come from. Maybe maybe you're totally ready for Christmas, but I'm not quite there yet. Uh, it has nothing to do with shopping. It really, it's really about the cheer and merriment part. Uh, I'm just not quite there. Um, but, uh, so we wanted to usher in a little bit of that for you this morning with some Christmas. And as you could tell by the stage, there's a lot more to come. Uh, but I wanted to start out this morning by just telling you that I'm grateful. I'm grateful. And I, I hope that you had some time over the last few days to tell somebody what you personally are grateful for. Because that's a really great experience. And, and, and I'm thankful for my kids and for my wife and for my health. But, but I'm also very, very thankful for you. I'm thankful for the people of Parkview. Uh, almost six years ago, the Davis family packed up everything they had and moved here. And you opened up your lives and your hearts and your arms to us. And it has been an incredible, incredible experience. And so I'm grateful for you. I'm thankful that you have been kind to me and kind to my family. But I'm also incredibly grateful for your generosity. As you, if you were here last Sunday, you heard Ray spend the entire sermon talking about all that God has done in the life and through the life of this church over the past year. And and he had the opportunity to say thank you. And I wanted to start out this morning by also saying thank you. Because your generosity, the things that you have done in the name of Jesus Christ, locally, regionally, and globally, is incredible to me, and I'm grateful for it. So we're thankful. We have a day to say great thanks. And then our culture and our society shifts gears dramatically for us, and it becomes Good Friday, like that. And we move from an attitude of thanksgiving to this fever-pitched shopping experience. It's estimated that Amazon will do $30 billion worth of business in November and December. Americans will spend $617 billion on Christmas this year. On Thursday, we consumed 50 million turkeys and spent $2.7 billion doing it. To say that Americans are focused on purchasing stuff would be an understatement. And I would argue this morning, if there is a competing religion to Christianity, it is the idea of consumerism. We we are compelled to buy stuff. Now listen, this isn't going to be a sermon about how much Americans spend or how much we like to shop. It's not an anti-consumerism sermon. It's a message about hope. But at this point in the year, it's impossible for us to avoid the truth of our condition. In fact, over the next several months, over the next month of December, many of us will get on an airplane and travel somewhere to spend Christmas with our loved ones. And even in an aluminum tube in the sky, we cannot afford, uh, avoid the opportunity to shop. Have you ever picked up one of these Sky Mall magazine, the dreaded Sky Mall magazine, and thumbed through it and thought to yourself, who buys this stuff? Well, this magazine generates like $130 million a year in revenue. 460 million people a year, Americans, will pick up one of these magazines and thumb through it. 
And they can put anything in here they want and charge an extraordinary rate for it. And people, because we're bored, because we've got nothing else to do, we will buy it. We will buy stuff like this. This is a toaster that will imprint a dog on your toast. Or maybe you could buy this. This is the ring from the Lord of the Rings. It doesn't get much nerdier than that, does it? Except this. This is called an ostrich pillow. And it's designed to be worn on an airplane in public. And it will keep your eyes covered and your head level. Or you can put your head down on the tray table in front of you and put your arms in those holes right there and be all snug and cozy. And no one will talk to you. (laughs) Or you could buy something like this. It's a nice box. It's kind of pretty. Put stuff in it. The box is designed so that every time you open the lid, it says a word of affirmation to you. Yes, as long as your name is Bob. It's called Bob's Affirmation Box. And every time it opens, it says, Bob, you look nice today. Bob, it's a great haircut. Bob, very sharp today. It's ridiculous, I know. But my personal favorite is this one. It's a squirrel, mounted squirrel, taxidermied squirrel. Why would anyone buy this kind of stuff? And yet we are obsessed with purchasing things. And so we buy this ridiculous stuff that's found in this crazy magazine called SkyMall. It's been my experience that we as Americans categorize our stuff in four ways. We invest the resources that we have in, in a mixture of these four categories. The first is this, kingdom assets. We can invest our resources in kingdom assets, things that advance the kingdom of God, that make a difference spiritually in people's lives. We can invest our resources in appreciating assets, things like a house where when you buy it, you expect it to grow in value and be worth more than the dollar, the dollar that you paid for it. And then there's depreciating assets. Those things like a car, where as soon as you buy it, you drive it off the lot, it's worth less than what you paid for it. And then finally, temporary assets. Those things like virtually everything contained in the Sky Mall that will go away over time, that have no lasting value. And with the time that we have left this morning, I want to look at what the Bible says about our resources and how we should invest them. Now, I know, listen, when we start talking about this kind of stuff, people get a little twitchy. You start talking about money or resources. But think about it in this way. As we have focused on all that we have to be thankful for, and as we move into the most active shopping season of the year, consider this moment in time an opportunity to recalibrate to refocus on that which is most important in our lives. Because the beauty of what Scripture teaches us this morning is that we are made to live a generous life. We're wired for this. The church is designed for this. And when we are at our best, 
The world will know us by our love, a ridiculously generous love. In fact, if you have your Bible, you can open it to Acts chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one of ours. It's in the chair in front of you. And if you need a Bible, just steal ours. We'd love for you to have it. But in Acts chapter 20, Paul is speaking to the church at Ephesus in what are essentially his very last words to them. In Acts 20, he is saying to the church, I'm about to leave. I'm out of here. He's about to depart from them and say goodbye to them forever. These are people who came to faith because Paul went all in for them. He established this church. He invested into these people. They loved him and he loved them. And he's giving them his final words. And we pick it up in verse 32. He starts out by saying, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. Paul is saying, I've trusted you with the gospel. I've given you the good news of Jesus Christ. And as long as you have that in your heart, you're going to be great. Then he goes on to say, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul will continue in just a moment to give them some words of wisdom. And the tone in which he communicates this is one of, do as I have done. Don't, don't, Don't worry about much. Just do what I have done. And he says this, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of our Lord Jesus himself who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul is saying, I have worked hard. And I have given away much. I have lived a generous life. Do as I have done. Because it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now many of us have heard that phrase before. But it's usually from a parent saying to us as we fight for our siblings, for who's going to open the first gift. Son, it's better to give than to receive. But that's not the tone that Paul is taking here with his people. He's quoting Jesus and he's saying, no, seriously, really, to give is way more blessed than to receive. Let me ask you this morning, have you ever met an incredibly generous person who is also really cranky and bitter? No, that person doesn't exist. We are designed to be generous people. We are at our best when we're being generous. We are most at home. We are most at peace when we are able to be generous. We're designed to be generous people because it's the most accurate reflection of hope and the most tangible expression of love that we have to offer the world. Over the years, I have met some of the most remarkably generous people. And to the person, to the individual, they are the most happiest most content, most at peace people I've known. 
I want to be more like those people. Paul says, I've lived my life trusting the gospel and living this generous life. Hear me as we say goodbye forever. Live your life this way. The story concludes, and Scripture tells us, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that he would never see, they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. So imagine as you watch Paul, the guy who wrote most of the New Testament, gathered with his people, kneeling to pray. And as he says amen, and he gets up and he walks down the dock, there's kissing and there's crying and there's sorrow. And he leaves them with these words, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This, re- this week I was, had some time to read and I, I read a couple of books, uh, one of which is called Drive by Daniel Pink, who's a writer and a business thinker. And he's talking about some research that some scientists have done around the question of, can money make you happy? And, and, and he's referencing the research, and, he, and he, this is his quote. He says, we know that human beings are not merely smaller, slower, better smelling donkeys trudging after that day's carrot. We know if we spent time with young children or remember ourselves at our best, that we're not destined to be passive or compliant. We're designed to be active and engaged. And we know that the richest experiences in our lives aren't when we're clamoring for validation from others but when we're listening to our own voice. And here's what's most important. Doing something that matters, doing it well, and doing it in the service of a cause larger than ourselves. Another book book that I read uh, over the course of this week referenced that very same research by these scientists. And, And his quote is this, the bottom line of their research is that no matter how successful you are, it is giving your life away to others that makes you happy. You see, these researchers set out to discover, is it scientifically possible to prove the notion that money will make you happy? And the results of their research indicated that yes, in fact, money can make you happy as long as you spend it appropriately as long as you spend it on what matters. Their research determined that you are happier, healthier, will live longer the more generous you are with all that you have, whether it be money, whether it be time, whether it be stored resources, whatever it may be. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul, starting in verse 1, describes it this way. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. You see, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. What you have to understand is the church at Macedonia was struggling. They were in a severe situation of trial. But they looked beyond their walls and they saw people that were suffering more and they said, we want to give. So they pooled their resources and they gave. And Paul says, I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. 
saying, I watched as they willingly give what they could afford and then went beyond to give even more. The verse continues, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So the picture is this church that's out there struggling to survive. And they hear all that Paul is doing and all that his church is doing to serve people who are suffering more. And they beg to be a part of it. They run to that opportunity to serve. And they give not just of their own ability, they give beyond what they thought they could afford. Now listen, this is where we have much to celebrate. As a church, this is what we do. Time and time again, I have seen this church do exactly this. As you heard Ray talk about last week, this is a ridiculously generous church. And as you've heard me say over the years, I'm amazed in awe of the generosity of the people who call Parkview home. It's bold and it's inspiring to me. But as I look at these words in 2 Corinthians, I wonder for myself, am I, are we, given in a place that is beyond what we think we can afford? Are we giving not simply out of our financial resources, the stuff that we have, the time that we have, but are we giving to a point that actually inconveniences us? Are we giving out of a place of genuine sacrifice? And at this moment, this opportunity to recalibrate, that's the question. This week on your behalf, we've had the privilege of wiring a significant amount of money to Mahima in India to fund their next year's worth of, of ministry and work. We also, on your behalf, committed Parkview to drilling two new wells with Living Water International. And in two weeks, we're going to give another chunk of change to International Justice Mission to help them end human trafficking in the city of Calcutta. Just three days ago, we partnered as a church with First Congregational Church in Glen Ellen to provide a free meal for more than 200 people. And if you were a part of that, if you made something, if you baked a pie, if you cooked stuffing, if you sewed up to showed up to serve, if you donated food, I want to say thank you for that. Because you were available, you served You showed up for a bunch of people who needed a place to be on Thanksgiving, so thank you. Our deacons fund this year will help dozens of people who need help. Every week, we as a church are standing by hospital beds, sitting with couples whose marriages are on the edge of destruction, holding the hands of people who are praying for God's grace and mercy, standing in the gap for those in our community who are marginalized and victimized. As a church, we do these things. We do these things together. Why? Why do we do all that? Because it brings hope to the world. This is what we were made to do, church. We are made to do more and more and more of this. It is more blessed to give than to receive. That is an action. It is love in action. And when we live out that kind of love, it yields a true and sacrificial life of generosity. Paul goes on in chapter 9, starting in verse 6, to make this point even stronger. He's writing to further encourage the generosity of the church. He says this, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now really, there are two worldviews at play here. 
There's a worldview of scarcity, and then there's a worldview of abundance. A world of scarcity means that it's all about a version of math where two plus two is always four. And when I take away two, I only have two left, and that's a bad thing. We're constantly holding and counting what we have. But in God's economy, he operates out of a place of abundance. And it says that the more I give away, the more I will receive. It's not just about receiving money back. It's about receiving life, a blessed life, a generous life, a life full of impact. So Paul is saying, if you plant little, you're going to harvest little. But if you plant plenty, you will harvest plenty. But here's the key. Here's the key to this in verse 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And if you hear nothing else this morning, you hear this. Ray has said it numerous times. I have said it numerous times. If you are giving or you feel obligated to give out of a place of guilt or obligation, you should stop it. If you're giving to Parkview out of guilt or obligation or a sense of I'm going to get something in return for this, stop. Because the biblical idea of generosity is one of joy. It's intended to be something that brings joy to your life. And obligation isn't about that. I mean, who doesn't love a cheerful giver? All of us enjoy witnessing people who live out a generous life. Paul goes on to affirm that statement when he says, and God is able to bless you abundantly. He's he's able to give you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor and their righteousness endures forever. Now this is true of anyone with any amount of resources. You see, with God, it is never about how much. It's about how come. It's never about how much money or how much time or how much resources. It's simply about how come you're giving it. A year ago, this time, we started receiving commitment cards for All In. And one of my favorite cards came from a woman who was beginning to give for the very first time. And she committed to giving $8.30 a month. For her, that was all in. But there's beauty in that. You see, we get so hung up on the issue of money. Hear me, nobody cares how much. Just give until it hurts a little bit. So as we close the books on Thanksgiving and we acknowledge all we have to be thankful for, We prepare for the onslaught of spending opportunities over the next few weeks. I want to encourage us to live a life that's generous, and I want to give you some tips on how to do that. Don't freak out. Don't. Here it comes. It's not about that. So I want to give you some tips to live a generous life. First and foremost, number one, don't forget the church. And you're giving this year, don't forget the church. Again, Parkview, this isn't about money. Parkview is fine. This isn't about giving more money to the church. The reason to give to the church is because you are, in fact, the church. And it's a beautiful thing when the church shows up and you get to be a part of that. 
So in the scope of all your generosity this year, don't forget the church because the church is God's hands and feet here on earth. And we together get the opportunity to do more than we could do as individuals. It's not about money. I mean, think about it. Bill Gates, richest guy around. As of Friday, his net worth was $81 billion. He's 59 years old. So let's say he lives to be 90. That's 31 more years. Assuming he makes no more money over the course of those 31 years, he would need to spend $7.2 million a day to exhaust his wealth. Even if Bill Gates showed up into this room, he could not do what the work of God has done over the last decades that this church has been sitting right here. It isn't about money. It's about our heart. It's about a generous life. When the community needs a place to celebrate Thanksgiving, we're here to provide. When a hardworking family loses their jobs and they can't pay their bills, we're here to provide. None of that we could do as individuals, but together we can. So tip number two, listen for needs. Generous people are acutely aware of the needs around them. I mean, think about it. Maybe this month you'll hear somebody say, our heat went out in our house and we can't afford to fix it. Well, you have a unique opportunity in that moment. You can say from the comfortably heated home, I will pray for you. Or you can say, I don't know how, but I'm going to find a way to help you fix your heat. This is what we do. This is what the church is here to do. We run to those things. We respond. And you say, I'm going to call a guy and he's going to show up at your house and he's going to fix your heat. And some of you would say, I can't do that. I can't afford to do that. You're right. Together we can't. And do you know why? Because when that person's heat is fixed, we get to say, Jesus did that. There isn't a life group here they couldn't pool their resources together and fix somebody's heat. It's the reality of the church. It's the power of what happens when we come together and pool our resources and do. So we listen, and when we hear, we act. The third thing is, find weird opportunities to be generous. Find weird, random ways this holiday season to be generous. I don't know if you've ever been a waiter or a waitress in a restaurant. Those of us that have had that experience tend to tip a little differently than the rest of you. So here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. Sometime over the next 30 days, maybe you're at a restaurant and you get horrible service. Tip that person ridiculously. I mean, go overboard and tip them. Do you think they showed up that day intentionally designed to give you bad service? No. Something's going wrong in their life. Bless them. Find weird ways to be generous this holiday season. And when you do, I follow Jesus and he told me to do this should be the words that come out of your mouth. And then the last tip, give in secret. Find a way somehow, either by yourself or with your family or with your life group, to give something generous anonymously. Just show up for somebody and then not even know where it came from. And you'll have the privilege of putting your head down on the pillow at night with a little smile on your face that says, it is going to be so amazing when they find that. Or that is going to be such a blessing in their life. And they don't even know where it came from. So this holiday season, let's live a life that's about generosity. And we're going to do that by first not forgetting the church. 
And again, I don't mean that it has to be about giving money to this church. It just means find an opportunity to give to the church because collectively we can do more than we can as individuals. And number two, listen for needs around you because they're all around you. And then run to those needs to meet them. Third, find weird opportunities to be generous. And fourthly, find opportunities to be generous in secret. Now, as we close this morning, I want to leave you with this. I believe with everything in my heart that if we, as a church, as individuals in this church, if we live our life seeking to live a life that is about generosity, we recognize and believe that it is better to give than to receive. This will be the best, most rewarding, most inspiring Christmas ever. There'll be more joy and more reward than you know what to do with. And the reality of the situation is that when we do that, hope is revealed. The tangible expression of the hope in Jesus Christ is revealed to the world through our generosity, through our love. Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you as we look back for everything that you have given to us. For your grace and for your mercy, for the opportunity to worship here this morning. But God, I ask that as we leave this place, you would give us the courage and the strength to trust you for every minute of the day and for every dollar in our wallet. Because when we trust you for those things and recognize that all of it comes from you, we will live a life that is more free, that is more open-handed, that is more generous to the world around us. Give us the courage to do that. Give us the courage to live a life that is about generosity. Burn those words into our heart and our mind. It is better to receive, better to give than to receive. And I promise God at the end of the day, when it is all said and done, we're going to give you all the honor and the glory and the praise because it is only in you and through you that we have these opportunities to serve. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So that's the answer, right? I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to give it all. I'm going to trust it to Jesus. That's the answer. So listen, I want to do something a little differently this morning as we get ready to leave. I'm going to pray in just a few moments, but I want to take advantage of this opportunity to pray. Uh, you, you, like me, have watched the news, and this has been a difficult week in the life of our country. And regardless of what side of the equation you fall on right now, There are lots and lots of people gathering in Ferguson, Missouri to pray in churches just like this in what is likely the darkest day of their community's life. They gather in a church and pastors and Christians finding a way somehow to communicate the light and love of Jesus, the hope of the world in a very difficult season of life. So I want us to close our time together this morning praying for those churches, praying for those brothers and sisters who are struggling to find the answers to the questions that people are asking. And because Ray is out of town and he hates it when I do this, I'm going to ask us to hold hands in a place of unity. Uh, He's really germaphobic. Um, So out of a place of unity, and if you don't like touching people, that's fine. But, but if, you, if you don't mind, just grab the hand of someone next to you and we're going to stand and we're going to pray for these folks. Father, we come before you this morning and we know that 
There are lots and lots of brothers and sisters who around the country, but more specifically in Ferguson, are asking the question, why? And they're trying to find their way out of a dark place. And you, we recognize that you are the only way out. And so I pray for those pastors and for those believers that you would give them the strength and the courage to lead. And they would point people to Jesus. And they would, you would give them your words and your words alone that would help provide healing and hope for a community that is in need. And years down the road, we would look back on this moment in time and the church, you, Jesus Christ, would have been the center of reconciliation and the center of healing in that community. Now, God, as we leave this place, as millions of people are doing right now all around the world, we ask, God, that you would unite us, that we would be more about giving than receiving, that our lives would be marked by generosity, and that generosity would communicate love, and that love would bring reconciliation and healing and purpose to the world and hope. So God, we love you and we thank you for loving us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.